him talk about uh, up north that's what they would say up north we got to get them up north get them to Ohio seemed like when they thought they could get them up north get them to Ohio they'd be safe because they knew that the, the, the people wasn't they weren't gonna follow them or such a certain they, they would follow them for a little bit to try to catch them but they would only go so far and you know I don't know if you're familiar with it or not but those people back in that time could kind of listen to the earth and could tell if if something was coming or horses. You ever heard them talk about that? They could put their ear to the ground and listen. And if they hear those horses coming, they knew that we have to push on. Maybe we have to get across this river before we can rest. I'm going home to live with my Lord. The Underground Railroad was a mechanism that allowed slaves who wanted to run away from the south to the north to safely make it into an area where they could be free. Going to lay down my heavy burdens. I'm going to see my mother and father. It was a groundswell, a human groundswell of concern. We'll be able to put Put me out. Oh, I said soon. The Underground Railroad went into the swamps, into the Everglades, the Seminoles. They went into the Caribbean, into Mexico. So escaping slaves moved in many, many directions, not just north and not just towards Canada. And in many cases, there were free communities, uh, people there who were willing to receive them and to help help them find jobs, help them find lodging, and to make a home. With the troubles of this world, I'm going home to live with my Lord. It began pretty much as soon as Slavery was institutionalized, and it certainly was pretty much in full bloom by the second decades of the 19th century. Hear that freedom train are coming, coming, coming. Hear that freedom train are coming. Hear that freedom train are coming. Get on board, In terms of the railroad metaphor, it consisted of stops along a, a route where slaves could be hidden by friendly people, either white or black, and then spirited away to the next stop, passed on, you know, either in a wagon or walking in the night or, you know, escorted by day in disguise, until they reached an agreed-upon spot where they would be taken in by somebody, given a new identity and allowed to have a new life. But they'll be coming How did the Underground Railroad get its name? It got its name because it was as if people magically disappeared and appeared somewhere else, as if there was a railroad under the ground. 
It took various forms. It could be overland. It could be by sea, like you know, Frederick Douglass, for example, escaped by water. Uh, some people escaped by train. Some people walked and so forth. Harriet Tubman took people pretty much overland walking. So it involved pretty much a kind of collaboration between free blacks and slaves almost from the beginning. The majority of, of participants in the Underground Railroad were, were free blacks. But it did have a significant white support on the part of abolitionists who were prepared to break the law, helping people steal property, who allowed slaves to stay in their homes, who hid people, who carried people from place to place, who forged passes, who gave people monetary support and food and so forth. And so there's a fairly significant role for white Americans in the Underground Railroad. Hear that free, dumb train are coming, coming, coming. Hear the free. There was strong abolitionist activity, probably wherever there was a Quaker community. During the late 1600s, Quakers began to question whether slavery was right. George Fox, the founder of Quakerism, encountered slavery in the Barbados and took a stand then, saying he opposed the practice and that he urged the careful consideration of how slaves were treated. They finally reached the point at about the time of the Revolutionary War that all Quakers were required to give up their slaves if they wanted to remain Quakers. And that happened almost a century before the Civil War finally ended slavery in this country. And Quakers were standing up to be counted uh, against slaveholding long time before the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, in time, the Quakers in the South came to realize that they couldn't end slavery in the South, and so they began to look toward migrating up into the lands of the Northwest Territory. Beginning at the turn of the century, in 1799, in North Carolina, a Quaker meeting sent representatives north to inspect the Ohio Territory, and they returned to North Carolina with favorable reports, and beginning the next year, the great migration of Quakers to eastern Ohio occurred. There were anti-slavery groups in eastern Ohio in St. Clairsville as early as 1815. Quakers were deeply divided about a number of theological issues, the real role of scripture and that sort of thing. But they were not divided about the importance of taking an anti-slavery stand, whether it was either just to, to express the feeling that slavery was evil or go to the extent of actually helping slaves escape. We have a perfect example of Quakers of, of two very different persuasions working together in regard to the Underground Railroad. Down in Somerton, the leader among friends was a Dr. William Schooley, who was known as a Hicksite. Here in Barnesville, the chief conductor in the Underground Railroad was Bill Bundy, who came originally from North Carolina. And Bill Bundy was an Orthodox, or a conservative Quaker. He and Schooley 
disagreed on many, many things, but night after night after night with wagon loads of fugitives from the south covered by hay and so forth, they would meet, Schooley bringing the slaves from Somerton and Bundy taking them to even Mount Pleasant sometimes. He took the slaves that had been brought to his mother's barn and hidden overnight, and then by wagon, took them as far as he could towards the next station north. The aged slaves and children rode in the wagon, and the rest marched behind. It was because of this experience that he became known as Black Bill. And years went by, and hundreds of slaves are said to owe their freedom, really, to the efforts of these two Quakers, as well as many other people here in in eastern Ohio. So a lot of that work was done in the middle of the night. I don't know how they had the energy then to, to carry on during the day. I think there are lots of people of all stripes who who don't, when the chips are down, come through in the way that many of these friends did. It was a beautiful example of first things first and the human dimension mattering a great deal more than the theological argument. It illustrates a time of solidarity that probably hasn't been experienced since. Now, of course, as we talk about the groups of people who were involved in Underground Railroad nationally, the Quakers play a very prominent role, but they weren't the only group. You had, in different areas, different religious groups because of their dislike and moral outrage against slavery that took part in the Underground Railroad. There was a network, and in our area, it was primarily the Quakers. To the south of us, in the Stafford area, and in Summerfield over in Noble County, and in the Calis area, it was the Wesleyan Methodist uh, organization. But part of what happens when we try to reconstruct these stories, you're dealing with people who don't have a written culture that goes back beyond about 1860 for most of us who were slave families, and I'm just two generations from slavery. So... Some of the stories uh, we can't really verify. The majority of conductors, as they call them on the underground railroad, tended to be black. And the majority of safe houses tended to be safe houses vouched for owned by, uh, by free blacks. Until you get far enough north where it doesn't make much difference, by the time you get up to New England, the majority of people participating are most likely to be white. There were many, many, many black people who were involved with the underground railroad movement. Unfortunately, we don't have the information because we didn't write the history. It would have been oral. And because people who were involved in the Underground Railroad were not looked upon favorably, and so the information was hidden. For example, there has been within the last four or five years an effort to really bring to light the activities of John Parker, who was a black abolitionist in Ripley, Ohio, in the same place where Rankin was, the Presbyterian minister who was so very active with the Underground Railroad movement. Not only was Parker very, very active and perhaps helped as many as a thousand slaves to freedom through the activities that he undertook. He was a businessman. He owned a foundry. 
Ripley is right on the river, and you can stand in Ripley and look across into Kentucky, which is slave-owning territory. In some instances, he is supposed to have gone into slave territory to escort blacks out and probably came up here into what is now West Virginia, so he ranged fairly far from home up the river helping slaves. Ohio was the first state out of the five states that developed in the Northwest Territory. And in 1787, when the Ordinance of the Northwest Territory was established, that put into writing the first legal document in the history of mankind that outlawed human slavery. That answers the question as to why this area was so important not only to the freed blacks but also to the Quakers who came here. Mount Pleasant then was the headquarters of the Ohio Yearly Meeting beginning in 1814 and and basically the center of Quakerism in eastern Ohio. All along the river, I think that you'll find interesting stories of uh, the establishment of black communities. Wherever you found a free black population, you can bet your bottom dollar there was some underground railroad activity going on. They were hiding slaves. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell, tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. The laws in the southern states were such that even though you could be free and had papers that indicated such, if someone would take the papers off of you or not believe your story, someone could drag you back to another slave market and try to sell you again. Tell old Pharaoh to let my People go. There were two sides of our family, one that came from Virginia and one that came from North Carolina, living on the banks of the Ohio River. And we assumed since they were there by about 1850 that they had to have been freed slaves because they would not have been living that close to the Virginia border if they didn't have freedom papers because of the fugitive slave law. And there was always the risk that they would be picked up and taken back into slavery. So it's extremely touchy how you negotiate to a hostile white population and a black population that might not be totally sympathetic or willing to help you get where you want to get. So you have all that in your head as you begin. Let Jesus lead you all the way. Let Jesus lead you all the way. All the way from earth to glory, let Jesus lead you all the way. Then you have to figure out physically how do you get where you're going. Say, you know, if you are Frederick Douglass in the Eastern Shore of Maryland, how do you get as far as where you have to go, you know, New York, Massachusetts, how do you get there? I mean, it's a, you know, it's a heck of a long walk. Going up north, 
pour ma brute dedans, dancing my long chair tail. Hey, hey, ho, ho, you can't get a letter from home, Lord, Lord, can't get a letter from home. And so you figure out, okay, how can I go by boat? Who's going to help me get on the boat? Well, some free black sailors will help you get on the boat. Uh, they'll write papers. You can use their seamen's papers. I mean, that's how Douglas escaped. You know, people gave him forward seamen papers. And there were a number of slaves, uh, free blacks, who worked on the uh, in the maritime industry, who in fact could get people on the ship just by throwing the papers over to them on the dock, and then they could come over with the papers, and they're now on the ship, and they sail off, and you know, you're now free. to a crate. Like one fella, the story goes, Henry Box Brown. He was shipped from Carolina to Philadelphia in a box full of biscuits. Put himself into a cart and had himself nailed in and mailed to freedom and with food and water. And he, you know, sent himself parcel post. And when they opened him up, there he was, you know, kind of you know, out of it a bit and, you know, kind of dehydrated and so forth. But that was one way of, one way of doing it. You know, send yourself COD. You have other people just swim across the river. You're talking about the Ohio River. People just get on a boat. They're coming down the boat. They're doing boat work. And you just steer the boat close enough so you can jump. Uh, if you're talking about coming from Virginia and further south, Maryland and so forth, it's a long, typical kind of route. If you look at uh, Harriet Tubman, for example, going down into Virginia to get people in Maryland, you're talking about walking at night, hiding in swamps, uh, hunting your own food. You don't have a lot of stuff you can carry with you. Staying away from any kind of roads. And you would have to eat whatever the earth would provide. And sometimes you would stay in caves. And sometimes you would stay in hollow trees. And sometimes you would stay in corn shops. And a lot of people never made it, but a lot did. Come on up, come on up. I've got a lifeline, come on up to this train of mine. Come on up, come on up, I've got a lifeline, come on up to this train of mine. She said her name was Harriet Tubman, and she drove for the underground railroad. And with Harriet Tubman, her basic criteria was that you would die free one way or the other. So if there was a possibility of being caught, she would shoot you. And so if you signed on with her, it was like you would die free one way or the other, like either free in the north from old age or free on the trail because Harriet Tubman put a bullet in your head. But those were the conditions upon which she worked. She never let anybody go back. She actually never lost a customer, she said. She said she never lost a passenger. She had tremendous, tremendous courage. So she didn't play. And she was a master of disguises. She'd come in just as a young man, an old woman, uh, an old man. She was always armed. She was a legend. She was amazing, an amazing person. 
And that's how she got the name Moses. She was called a Moses of her people because she led people to freedom. And when you think Underground Railroad, you think Harriet Tubman. But she was unique. I mean, she did the hard ones. The easier routes would be the ones that near the borders, you know, Maryland, Virginia, over in the mountain areas where you can hop, step, or jump across the river into Ohio. And I remember when my father was dying, he had us roll him up in the bed and he began to tell us stories about some relative who was escaping across the Ohio River and scrambling through the water and getting up on the, the bank on the Ohio side where people were waiting for her. They didn't come across to the Virginia shore to get her, but they were there on the Ohio side waiting for her. And my father said that she was being chased. There are several sites, including some in what's downtown Wheeling now. Of course, West Virginia at that time wasn't West Virginia. It was Virginia and it was a slave state. So because of the industry and everything that was here, it was very easy to slip across the river with the help of freedmen from Ohio who sometimes came across the river to work. There wasn't a real large slave base here, but... It's my understanding a lot of slaves did come through, again, because of the, the commercial aspects of Wheeling itself, you know, it being the gateway to the West. There would have been freedmen working there in that area, would have been a lot of slaves probably working in that area. Ohio at that time, it's most, most definitely what is Martin's Ferry now, had a large black population, and a lot of the folks who were freedmen came over here to do day work. And a lot of them were blacksmiths and, you know, specialty people. Our proximity gives people a whole different view. It's real hard for this northern panhandle to stay slave with those two free states so very close, well within walking distance to get to Pennsylvania or Ohio. So you can imagine just the logistics of keeping it a slave state. When you're deep in the south, you're not going to really know any other life but that slave life. But when you come to a place like Wheeling with its many people going here and there, the, the German heritage, all the different nationalities that went through, you're going to see a whole different world than what you saw before. Then you're going to meet other people who work for wages and who maybe are African-American but aren't slaves. We were just across the river from Wheeling there was a slave market in Wheeling. They sold slaves along with everything else that they sold, all the farm products and animals and things like that. It wasn't that they were particularly being sold to people in Wheeling. It was being moved through Wheeling because of the availability of transportation there to other points. By 1815, the Quakers in Ohio had built a yearly meeting house at Mount Pleasant. The Quakers who lived there were very close to Wheeling, Virginia. It was not West Virginia then, but Virginia. None but the righteous, none but the righteous, none but the Judge Cochran, who wrote Bonnie Belmont, I think in the late 1880s, described it as a romantic history 
of the 1850s and 1860s in Belmont County, where he grew up, and which he loved a great deal. In the chapter about the slave auction in Wheeling, he speaks of his going as a 10-year-old to the Wheeling Market to be part of a big crowd that's gathering, watching the slave auction. There is an older slave woman on the block, and as he tries to figure out what is happening, he notices a gentleman in what we call plain dress, Quaker dress, and when he gets close to him, he says he sees some flour on the man's clothing, and then he begins to realize that this man is Joshua Cope, a Quaker who owns a major flour mill near Coleraine, and Joshua Cope bids on the woman. He does that, and I think almost immediately signs the certificate of manumission, which means that she is free. The boy looks at the slip of paper that has this message of freedom written on it. Joshua Cope was a very real person. He did have a mill near Coleraine. Bonnie Belmont has later on in the book a description of where in that mill the slaves were hidden. And it is absolutely factual. That's exactly the way the Cope hiding place was. probably you've already heard or you will hear about owners of water mills on the streams that ran steeply down toward the Ohio River where they were good places for people to hide behind the water wheels and the flowing water which would cut the scent which the dogs could not follow. The dogs were let loose to go after the people. They'd get something that had the scent of the person's clothing on it and then they would set the dogs out after them so that they could capture them one way or the other. That was money in their pockets. When a slave escaped, you were talking about a worker or a stud or a woman who could produce babies, who could work, who could cook, a man who, who uh, was like cattle. I've heard this story a number of times about my great-grandfather, Louis Tabor, when he lived on his farm near Mount Pleasant, called Rural Retreat. Apparently, on one occasion, a black man came running up the lane saying that he needed to be hidden quickly because the dogs were after him. And as you know, the hound dogs are invincible. Once they pick up the scent, if they smelled one item of clothing or something that a person has touched, then they can follow that scent for miles and miles and miles, and it's very hard to shake. It must have been a terrifying experience indeed to hear those hounds baying behind one.
great-grandfather thought quickly and said, here, we'll do this. And as I remember the story, he had the man step onto the manure pile because manure, as you know, is a very strong scent and that could, could cancel out the human scent. Then he had the man walk along the top of the fence to the house. And he said to his wife, Mary, hide this man somewhere so that he cannot be found. This would have been my great-grandmother who had, among her other children, twin daughters. And so she hid the slave under their bed and then had them put on their nightcaps and crawl into bed, pull down the shades. And then as the overseer and the owner came to search the premises, she was very gracious in letting them look around. And and then when they came to the room where her daughters were, she opened the door quietly and said, well, my two little daughters were not feeling very well, and so she had had them rest, and she was sure that they, as fine southern gentlemen, would not disturb her resting daughters. Why, she was shut the door again very quietly, and they all went away. One Levi Coffin story had to do with a simulated black funeral, and the supposed corpse was the escaping slave. And the funeral march was very real. Boy, they were really mourning and carrying on. And they went right past the slave catchers. I know of another case where an escaping slave was dressed in a Quaker bonnet. I don't know whether this was a man or a woman, but the sugar scoop bonnet goes way out in front of the face. And so with a little flower on the face and uh, so on, You could hardly tell who was back there in that sugar scoop bonnet. As the buggy went rattling quickly by, one wouldn't just stare into the bonnet of a Quaker lady. What you really get is in in day-to-day life is a tremendous amount of support for individual slaves who are being brought across the river. Uh, People sneaking across, you know, where you have a border with a slave area, bringing people across, protecting them all the way, especially after 1850 with the Fugitive Slave Act, where you're no longer safe within the borders of the U.S., That law then permitted a slave catcher from the south to come up into the north. And if he could find that slave who had escaped, the federal government was obligated to turn that person over to the slave catcher who could then take the man or the woman back to the south. The plantation owner would then give the slave catcher the money for capturing their slave. That really is a big shift. Once you get the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, you need help all the way through Ohio, all the way across the Great Lakes, up into Toronto or Windsor or Montreal or whatever part of Canada you want to get into. So that after 1850, you really do need more stations on the Underground Railroad because you have further to go. It's not just to get me into New York, but I'm not safe in New York now, you know. Slaves in West Virginia were not freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, as you know. Because the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to those states that were in the Deep South, that were Confederate. West Virginia was not. By that time, I mean, we were part of the, the Union as uh, the 35th state. But they didn't abolish slavery. 
If you're caught with a slave, technically you're caught with stolen property. I mean, legally, I mean, that's a felony. You've stolen a huge amount of people's capital and are going off with it, and you, you are liable. I mean, stealing people's property is not looked favorably upon in the system based on private property. So to commit yourself to working in the Underground Railroad, you're committing yourself to aiding and abetting the breaking of a property law, a major kind of property right. Quakers would obey the higher law rather than the law of property, even if uh, heavy fines were imposed upon them. The people would be fined very severely for it. The figure that comes to mind is $1,000. Now, if it were $1,000 at that time in history, that would be a very, very substantial sum of money. Even 500 would have been a very substantial sum of money. The slaves are taken back, and you're fined or whatever. There was a slave, young slave, I think it was from South Carolina, it must have been in the early 20s, who ran away uh, and was caught. And the master chopped off his foot, you know, as a punishment. He says, that'll teach him he'll never get away again. And the slave ran away again, because the description said slave with one foot missing has gone up into the woods and, as the master said, has this unnatural desire to be free. And he was caught again, and he chopped off the other foot. So the master's convinced, okay, I'm, this, this will certainly make an example of him and stop this running away thing. The next description from the slave plantation owner is the same slave who now has no feet. Gone somewhere, off into the woods, and they catch him because he's not moving too fast. They chop off his hand. He's now got one hand left. Escapes again. So now you have a description. Same plantation owner, same slave. The slaveholders get more and more upset, you know, talking about the slave is completely irrational, has scars from where I whipped him, you know, has markings on his head where I've beaten him to try to drive this demon out of him, this demon of freedom. And he chops off the final hand. The slave has no hands or feet and escapes. And the last you hear about is that somewhere out there, somewhere, is a slave who will not be, you know, this is an African person who will not be a slave. course you're beaten uh, and maybe your family is beaten you know like everybody will pay for your transgression and you decide well okay is it worth it you know uh, which is why most of the people that run away are young men you know if there are 10 people working on a dock you know throwing bales of cotton onto a boat you can fall into that group and look a lot more normal than a young woman women didn't have quite that anonymity most women don't escape because they're tied to the, to the offspring the kids you can't escape with young kids there are very few women who will risk taking their young kids into, into the unknown like that. It would be extremely unusual to see a young woman walking down the sequence. Virtually every white male would ask them, like, who are you? And so they would have to produce something. That's why Harriet Tubman wore disguises all the time. Uh, to just be a woman, just an ordinary kind of woman, would not have made it. She had to be like an older woman, a younger man. I mean, just to avoid the, the daily kind of hassle that, that African-American women got under slavery. 
Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. Oh, yes, Lord. Sometimes I'm almost to the But there were songs, certainly things like Follow the Drinking Gourd and Steal Away. I mean, we see them now as spirituals, but they were also signals. And I understand that there are some quilt patterns that also had built into them either maps or signals or so about the Underground Railroad. When the sun comes up and the first quail calls, follow the drinking gold. That was the Big Dipper. So they're, they're being told to follow this uh, and to find this man who's waiting for them under the tree who will take them to freedom. If you follow the drinking gold. Follow the drinking goat, follow the drinking goat. My grandmother, Eliza High, used to tell me stories about my great-grandmother who was born into slavery. Sadie worked in the big house. This was in the area of Raleigh, North Carolina. And the Austin Plantation was one of the larger plantation. My grandmother said that her mother told her There was something like 250 slaves on that plantation. And that she never learned to read or write, but the stars you would use as a road map to travel from one plantation to another. Oh, the old man is a-waiting for to carry you to freedom. Oh, follow the drinking but my grandfather was a slave. He was born into slavery and later became a free man. And my father was born in 1893. Mm-hmm. My daddy used to show me the stars and he showed me where the North Star was when I was a little child. And... Uh, Of course, I didn't see the significance of it then, but it was definitely used as a code for those who were about to leave so they would know, watch the sky. That's why they wanted to be certain that they could see the stars so they know which way to go. Swing along, sweet chariot, coming for the Steal away, swing low, sweet chariot. Many of your spirituals had coded messages in them. Swing low, sweet chariot. If you get there before I do, tell all of my friends I'm coming too. Did not necessarily mean that they were talking about going to heaven. I'm sometimes up, I'm sometimes down. 
sometimes level to the ground, could be dealing with areas that they needed to watch or markings on trees. Even, you know, they're spontaneous songs. So somebody was ad-libbing. And so there many times the ad-libbing had something to do with what was about to take place. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Anytime you hear the word Jordan in a song, did not necessarily deal with just going to the Jordan River to cross over to heaven. Jordan River was a key word used as a means of signaling the escape of people, and if they could cross the river, they would be into freedom. And when the dogs were after them, first place they hit was the water because the water would cover their tracks. So those dogs were not going to get very far with Jordan close by, whatever creek it might be. Chilly waters couldn't hear nobody pray. In the Jordan couldn't hear nobody pray. Crossing over couldn't hear nobody pray. In the kingdom, couldn't hear nobody pray. Oh Lord, couldn't hear nobody pray. Oh Lord, couldn't hear nobody pray. Oh Lord, way down yonder. A lot of times when Africans were planning an escape from a plantation, it would be a coordinated effort. It wouldn't be just one individual plantation that would be sending people. There'd be a number of plantations that were sending people at once. And so there was a whole system of songs that were shared from one area to another to another so that, that the songs would also be passed along with the movement of the people. So you might have 20 people who were planning a run at the same time and the word would be gotten around that a certain song was to be sung, you know, and like they might sing, Run, Mary, run, I say, run, Mary, run, I say, run on, Mary, run, I say, you got a right to the tree of life. And that was a signal that, that the next day was time to run. Or they might say, uh, run, Mary, run in the morning. And that's when the morning would be the time to, to go. Or they'd say, in the evening, and they'd know, you know, everybody's running in the evening, it's time to go. And then, you know, the people might run, and then and they'll get a certain distance, and, and then the hounds go out after them. So the signal might be, wait in the water. And everybody's singing, wait in the water, all along this, this passage route, you know. Wait in the water, children. And that's the signal that you can't stay on the land anymore. you got to walk in the water because the dogs can't follow the scent through water. And there were a lot of things like that. So that while the song may sound like a spiritual song, there there's a double meaning.
You don't need spirituals and so forth. There's a, a language of oppressed peoples and it just has to be coded. You know, to protect you has to be coded. And as long as you feel that you need that, then it will continue to develop and be used. And African American language is full of that stuff. There was a kind of a scriptural lingo. For example, as you know, Harriet Tubman was referred to as Moses. Down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. She sits on the corner and say, like, you know, what's happening, old man? She say, ain't nothing but Moses in the house, and Moses is here, like, you know, and people, okay, you know, I mean, that's all it takes. Uh, anybody got freedom on their mind? Tell her Moses is coming. It's easy to use those words openly without saying a whole lot. And, uh, well, y'all think about the Hebrew children. Well, Moses is coming, and matter of fact, be here today. Y'all look around. And there are ways of talking to the people to, to let people know what side you're on and where you stand. Hey, hey, ho, ho. We can't get a letter from home, Lord, Lord. Can't get a letter. It's clear from Harriet Tubman's accounts that word really did travel fast and effectively among the slaves on plantations. And they heard the details of escapes. A lot of times you read about slave characters and that, and a lot of them are weak, which I, I don't see how they could be weak to survive slavery anyway. You have to be pretty strong. When I was a child growing up, the, the vision of slavery that was too often presented to us was of all of these happy slaves strumming a guitar or a banjo out in the cotton patch. Well, in my own family, they weren't those happy slaves. We have escaped slaves on the one hand, uh, or many, many people who came and established homes for themselves. We have my grandfather who remained slave, but as soon as the Civil War was over, got out of Virginia uh, made a home, worked all his life, reared a family, bought property, was never in jail. So people don't see that side of black people. And if the, the image of the Underground Railroad was as static as people even portray that, it never would have worked. You got to keep in mind that when you're looking at an institution, it's an institution that by definition had to be underground. Although we're over 100 years past the Civil War, emotions still run pretty high in some places about it. 
And because the Underground Railroad was by its very nature a secret clandestine activity where people did not keep records, or in the case of John Parker, kept the record, records and then destroyed them, it is difficult to reconstitute uh, all of what happened, particularly when we start dealing with the black population and its involvement uh, with it. Probably one station on the Underground Railroad knew where the next two or three stations would be. And he probably had some knowledge of the people who were south of him who might be bringing in someone. But I suspect they all recognized it was just as well not to know too much about the entire structure. I wouldn't want a system where somebody in, on the Ohio border knew the name of everybody all the way to Canada. Like, all you gotta do is grab them and torture them get them a bunch of money, get them pissed off, and your whole operation is down the tubes. No, all I know is they come this way and they go that way, and that's all I know. Like, Frederick Douglass never heard of him. Had time and haven't seen it. All I know is, yeah, I got a package coming, here they come. You know, two packages. We're gonna clear out the basement, got some food down there, everything is fine. That's all I know. And do I want to go to a rally? No. Do I want to go to the next abolitionist meeting with William Lord Garrison giving a speech about freedom? No. Nope, too busy for that. Like, no, you you go to the meetings, you hear Frederick Douglass, you get your picture taken with Sojourner Jews. All I know is I got two packages coming, and I'll keep them in my basement, and I'll take them to the next spot. And if you came to interview me at the end of the Civil War and said, what did you do about the Underground Railroad? I don't know nothing about it. You know, like, why don't you go talk to Frederick Douglass and these other people? One thing in our family, there was a lot of secrets. That was another code of the black family, really. Not only my family, but older black people. When you go back to the generations that are now 70, 80, 90 years old, you'll find they're very secretive about a lot of things. And that was because they were taught you don't talk everything, you don't say everything. You have to make certain that some things are kept quiet. I've heard my uncle Lewis Tabor say that when his grandparents got together, William Pickett, and uh, Lewis Tabor, sometimes they would get back in a corner and talk quietly. And he felt that they were talking about the Underground Railroad. But for some reason, people just didn't talk about it publicly, even for years afterwards, partly because not all Quakers were comfortable with breaking the law, and partly because I think it was just well not to let too many people know about it. Because that wasn't why you did it. You know, you didn't, you didn't do it to talk about it. A lot of people that did it might be reluctant to talk about it. Like they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, I remember a little bit of that, but that was a long time ago. And it's over now. Like we're free now, why do you want to dwell on that? The vision of black people that has been perpetrated has been that we are people who have sat back and waited for other people to do things for us. Well, there was a lot of creativity, there's been a lot of genius, there's been a lot of self-help that has directed our lives from the beginning. You talk about cooperation among blacks, among blacks and other people. It just seems to me that there's so much there that is inspirational. But also, there's just this whole humanitarian concern that it is not right to enslave human beings. 
And here are people who are struggling against the enslavement of other human beings. That, for me, is a wonderful image to present to humanity that we, we care and con are concerned about people. And I guess I could conclude by asking us, what is the slavery today? What is it that we need to be freed from or to help others to be freed from today? You know, it's like, you're not free yet, so you can talk about it yet. You know, you got to be all the way free and make sure like everybody's free, then you can talk about it. If I'm telling you how I'm doing something, I might have to do that again. So I'm not so sure I want to tell you how I did it until it's clear I don't have to do that again. Written history is a matter of choices. We choose what to include and we choose what to leave out. And had we chosen to write about, think about, talk about, record instances of cooperation, of friendship, of kindness, of love, would that have made a difference to us as we try to find a way to get along with each other? The Underground Railroad suggests to us that there was a time in our country when there was great interracial cooperation. Many people think about, well, if, if there ever was a racial cooperation, it occurred during the 1960s. When you go back fully 100 years before and you find that people were risking their lives for a principle of freedom that they believed in, and uh, that is something that we should take note of as a people, as American people. And I think that if we look to a truthful past, there may be things there that uh, can help us find our way through the future.
You've been listening to the stories of Nelda Pitts, John Bracey, Bill Tabor, Ann Sella Bickley, Catherine Jacobson, Bernita Bundy, Bruce Yarnell, Diane Bell, Ethel Caffey Austin, Florence Edgerton Rockwell, and Laron Williams. Musical performances by Nelda Pitts, Ethel Caffey Austin, Bertha Tolliver, John Jackson, Ken Jacobson, Phil Wiggins, Emma Perry Freeman, Verda Cooper, and the Northern Kentucky Brotherhood. And special thanks to Bill Long and his Tucker County, West Virginia Bear Dogs. Writing Freedom's Train was researched and written by Carrie Noble Klein and edited and engineered by Michael Noble Klein. This program is a collaboration among the Underground Railroad Museum in Flushing, Ohio, the Alney Friends School in Barnesville, Ohio, and Talking Across the Lines, Worldwide Conversations at www.folktalk.org. Thanks to Lone Wolf Studios and Elkins for technical assistance and to the Augusta Heritage Center at Davis and Elkins College in Elkins, West Virginia for decades of devotion to traditional arts and artists. Only Friends students participated in research and field recording. Executive producers were Catherine and Ken Jacobson. This program was produced in 1996 with partial support from the Chase Foundation and the Ohio River Border Initiative a joint project of the Ohio Arts Council, the West Virginia Commission on the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. For Talking Across the Lines, I'm Michael Klein. Visit our website at www.folktalk.org.